welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Your Bibles with you. We will be in two different books today. We'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 6 if you'd like to turn there. I want to tell you a story. Back in 2016, I faced this dilemma. Uh, it turns out that there was a basketball game between Southside and Concord. Now, this was a dilemma for me because I had to figure out, I was obviously going to go, I had to figure out which side I would support at this ball game. And that's hard for me because Southside, that's my heritage. That's where I went to school at. But Concord was my presence. That's where I I work, so I had an emotional attachment to that and pride within that school as well. I had to, I had to, um, the struggle within me of do I support my alma mater? At my, in my heart, I am a Southside Southerner, but then there was this also this aspect of in my heart, there is also this place that gives me money and pays for my house, and I have a lot of allegiance to wherever pays for my house. So on one side I was a Southside Southerner, on the other side I was a Concord Pirate. But the biggest problem for me was not supporting a team name or a mascot. The biggest problem for me is which group of kids do I support? Because at this time I was the youth minister here and I had kids playing on the basketball team for Southside who I loved deeply, who I poured into and who I was discipling. And at the other hand I had kids who I taught at, at Concord who I loved deeply, who I poured into. So I came up with this plan of who do I support. I, I figured out I'm going to split myself in half. The first half I'm going to sit with all my Concord people and I'm going to cheer on the purple and gold and I'm going to be a Concord pirate. And at halftime I'll be a switcheroo. I'll just run over to the other side of the court. I'll sit with all my church people and I will cheer on my Southside Southerners and all my kids from church. And that went really well until the end of the game. And it turned out that this game in this particular tournament came down to the last minute. You guys know those basketball games that it's like two point lead, 58 seconds to go. The intention is getting really high. And so I'm sitting there and my heart is pounding. And one of my students from Concord, his name was Jacob. He runs down, hits a layup and I jumped up and I said, yes. And then I realized something. He had just shot this layup over one of my rhyme kids of whose which parents I was sitting right next to. And they were not very happy with me for cheering with Concord while I was sitting there. What I realized that day, what I realized that day is my heart had picked a side. And no matter, no matter how much I pretended to be on one side or the other, my heart had already said, I want Concord to win. Now, for those of you who are related to that basketball player, I apologize for my rhyme kids back in the day. But my heart had picked a side. Now, we can learn something about our heart from that story when it comes to our faith. Is our heart will always pick a side. And there's something about the human heart that whatever the human heart wants, it will pursue with everything. So when it comes to faith, we, we've got to understand that our heart is going to pick one of two things. It is going to pick our God or it is going to pick our world. There's a competition for our heart and we have to be careful to choose to pursue God and not the world. One of the best groups of the Bible at doing this was the Thessalonians. So as you've got your Bible open there, you should be open to 1 Thessalonians. Thessalonians are the people who live in a city called Thessalonica. Just like this is Southside, we are South Sidians. I know some of you are Batesvillians, but Thessalonians lived in Thessalonica. This was a trade city where the roads met the ocean 
And Paul and Silas had planted a church here. Shortly after planting their church, after sharing the gospel in Thessalonica, Paul and Silas had been ran out by people who were angry at them for sharing the gospel. And not only did they run them out of Thessalonica, they chased them to the next city and ran that out of them, or ran them out of that city as well. And so by the time this book is being written by Paul, Paul is now in Corinth and he's writing back to the church that he had planted sometime before and he's praising this young church for what he's hearing about them because he can't be with them after being run out of town, but he's still hearing good things. So listen to what Paul says to the Thessalonians and about their heart for God in chapter one. This is going to be verses six through 10. So Paul speaking, he says, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. So Paul says, You became followers of us. You imitated us as we imitated God. So we all follow God. You did this even though it came at great cost with you. And there was a lot of joy in that. Verse 7. So that you were made in samples as examples to all who believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. For they themselves show us show of us what manner of, of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. I'm going to say that again. That's the crux of our message this morning. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. Verse 10. And to wait for the Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So Paul's giving praise to this young church. It's like planting a child almost. He's sending back to these young Christians and he's saying, I am so proud of you. Here's what I'm hearing about you. You guys, your faith is spreading as an example to everybody, not just in Macedonia, that would be modern day Greece, not just that area, but all across the Mediterranean area, all across the Roman Empire. You guys have a reputations of a, a reputation of examples of what it looks like to follow God. And from that reputation, from that example you're putting off, the word of God is spreading because of you and the way you live your life. And specifically, he's talking about that reputation that they have got is their reputation is that they have turned from idols to serve the one true God. Paul is saying to them, your testimony is so great. You don't have to tell me. Other people are telling me about your testimony. Now, let me explain that because that's a churchy word again. If you haven't spent a lot of time in church, your testimony is your story about how God is working in your life. And everybody's testimony is different. Some of you were saved at a very young age and your testimony is how, how God has been with you all of your life. Some of you were saved when you were older and your testimony is how God pursued you even into your own age. Everybody's testimony is different. And sometimes some of you have been there at churches where they have a testimony service and people will get up and they will talk about what God is doing in my life and everybody will share and just share that blessing. What Paul is saying to them is you guys have an excellent testimony of what God is doing in your life. It is so good that not only are you telling people that people are repeating your testimony. And that testimony is centered around the fact that these people, the Thessalonians, turned away from idols to serve the one true God. Now, in the Roman world, that's huge. These aren't just people that were trying to get it right and didn't quite have it and then found Jesus. These are people who were serving other gods. They said, I'm giving up on those gods. I'm turning my back on them so that I can follow the one true God, Jesus Christ. That was almost unheard of in the Roman Empire. That's almost unheard of, I guess, in today's life. That is a big thing to leave your idols. So Paul is saying here that one of the keys to being a disciple is being willing to leave whatever idols you worship to follow the one true God.
We've been in a series, this is the last sermon in this series, talking about the practical traits of a disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple day to day? And we've talked about reading your Bible, needing to know God's word. We've talked about prayer and faith community. Last week we talked about service. So today we're going to talk about our last habit. Habit number five on your take-home truths of a disciple is to turn from idols. Habit number five, turn from idols. And I know what you're thinking. I stand up here every week and I see your faces. I know what you're thinking. One of these things is not like the others. Like everything so far in this series has made sense. Bible reading, that's very simple. I can do that daily. I know how to do that. I pick up my Bible. I study my Bible. Prayer, I know how to do that. I set aside a prayer time. Brian, where do you get idols as being something that we need to practically look at in our day-to-day life? I don't serve any idols. Brian, I don't have a totem pole out of my backyard that I make sacrifices to on Thursday. Brian, I don't have a little statue in my house that I pray to daily and burn incense to. And you're correct. In the sense that the Thessalonians had idols, you do not have idols the same way. The Thessalonians would have been engaged in emperor worship. They would have had a cultic following of the emperor. They also worshipped the Roman pantheon, which is where you could choose from one of these dozens of gods. You'd put your stat- that statue in your house and you would worship that god. And there's a misconception when we talk about idols that an idol must be a statue with a face and a name. And that's why we have a hard time understanding how important it is for a believer to turn their back on idols. Because I look at myself and I say, I don't have any idols. I don't have any statues in my house. I don't have any names of some God that I serve. But to understand how this applies to us, we have to understand what the true characteristics of an idol are. So in your take-home truths, here we go. The first characteristic of an idol is that it has a transactional nature. A transactional nature. Here's how idol worship would have worked in Thessalonica and all across the world in many different cultures as far as that goes. You, you would go to an idol's temple or you would have an idol in your place and you would serve this idol by giving this idol money, by praying to it, by performing some kind of a ritual, maybe by sacrificing to it. Now you did all of that though for a purpose. You didn't do that as a daily habit. You didn't do that out of adoration for the idol. You did that when you wanted something from the idol. See, in the context of idols in this ancient world, there was no loyalty to idols. There was no love for idols. There was no adoration. They didn't run around singing, how great is my idol. Sing with me, how great. They never did that. They didn't care about their idols. It was purely transactional. I will serve you, false god. In return, you will give me this particular thing. Idols have a quid pro quo nature, and that's in every society. You appease these gods, and then these gods, they thought, would provide you with something. Which brings us to the bigger characteristic of an idol, is a character, uh, an idol number two, supplies a human desire. See, each of these gods, if you look at these Roman gods, each of these gods had the power over something that applied to your life and had the power to control things that you may have wanted. They supplied something for human desires. So, for example, the Roman god Neptune was the god of the sea. If you were a sailor, you would worship Neptune. And before you went out on the ocean, you would go make a sacrifice to Neptune, hoping that he would protect your voyage on the sea. 
The Roman god Mars was the god of war. If you were a soldier, you served the god Mars. You hoped he would give you victory on the battlefield if you prayed to him enough. Vulcan was the, the god of fire. Blacksmiths worshipped him and believed that he could give them special skill with their craft. Mercury was the god of business and trade. If you were a businessman, you would worship and sacrifice to Mercury. You would do rituals, hoping that he would give you successful financial ventures. And Venus was the goddess of love, beauty, fertility, and sex. And if you worshipped her, you hoped that she would give you attractiveness, she would give you love, she would give you relationships. Each god had a purpose, but each of those purposes was to supply your desires. And you see this in all ancient societies, that all societies have idols or gods that represent these same human desires. So in truth, when you serve an idol, you weren't actually serving a god, you weren't serving the statue, you were going to the statue and said, I will give this to you if you will supply my human desire. So in truth, what you were serving was yourself. I'm going to go make a sacrifice so that I can get what I want. I will do these prayers so that I can get what I want. I will do this ritual so that idol will supply for me what I want. Idol worship has always been about getting our own human desires. So our next take on truth is idolatry is serving our desires under the cover of worship. See, the Romans were just slightly more honest than you and me. You and I do the same thing. You and I have our own idols. We serve things hoping that they will give us back our human desires. The Romans just simply gave theirs a face and a name and a place of worship, and they went there and worshiped those idols. You and I have the same idols that humans have had throughout all of history. They're just different. So to us, maybe we don't worship Mercury, the god of, of business, but we do have the, uh, the idol of workaholism, where we work all of the time. And this idol says to us, if, if you will just give me your hours, if you will give me your strength, if you will work hard, if you will show up early and you will stay late, if you will sacrifice your family for this job, I'll give you what you desire. I'll give you the promotion. I'll give you success and prestige among your friends. Some of us worship the idol of relationships where we just have to have a relationship because the idol relationship says that if you are in a relationship with somebody, you will always get the desire that you want of love. And even if you have to give yourself sexually to a hundred different people, you will find happiness in relationships. And you'll see people go from relationship to relationship to relationship chasing that human desire. It could look like, it could look like the idol of the gym. I'm not saying that going to the gym is a bad thing, but honestly, if you go to the gym, what does the gym say? You give me enough sweat, you give me enough pain, you give me enough hours, I will give you attractiveness, purpose, and self-security. It could be the idol of political parties, one of the biggest ones we face today. It says, if you're just loud enough for me, one day maybe your desires will be in governance. Now, I want to be clear, there's those and a thousand other things that could be an idol to us, and they're not necessarily bad in and of themselves. It's when we choose to worship these things, when we choose to let these things give us our desires, that this becomes an idol in our life. And maybe not everything in those can be bad is when they begin to control us. But there's one idol and one idol only, one modern idol that Jesus called by name multiple times. And he identified it to you and me as something that would compete with him for our hearts. Does anybody know what that idol is? Read with me here in Matthew chapter 6. If you've got your Bibles, turn over here with me. Just one verse here. 
Jesus speaking of the idol that you and I are most commonly faced with in today's world, and I would say since the time of Jesus. This is verse 24. Jesus speaking here, he says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Listen to what Jesus says. You cannot serve God and mammon. The idol that Jesus refers to here, mammon, is often translated money. It's more than money, though. The idol that that Jesus is worried about, us serving, taking our love away from him, is wealth. That's the $100 bill in your pocket. That's your 401k and your IRA and your investments. That's how much salary you make. Jesus was concerned with this idol that can be in our hearts, that can set up a competition with him. And our heart would pursue that. And even as followers of Christ, this is the easiest idol for us to fall into. So let's talk about what Jesus says about the idol of wealth here. We've got some points. It says the idol of wealth can, point A, is compete with God. See, Jesus sets up, Jesus sets up this, this scene here before he tells us what we cannot serve both of. He says, you cannot have two masters. You can't serve two things. Your heart will not rip itself between Concord and Southside. Your heart will not rip itself between money and God. You will wholeheartedly serve one and despise the other. See, Jesus was worried that there would be a competition in our hearts for him with money because our heart has a one-track mind. Our heart will focus on one thing and it will go after that more than anything else. That's why you can't have two spouses. Because one of those two spouses is going to be your favorite. And you're always going to want to spend one time with one spouse and you'll be frustrated when the other spouse wants time with you. So for example, heaven forbid, imagine if I, if I married a second wife. Obviously Jessica would be my favorite. You've got to make sure that's out there, right? And so for a whole week, I'm spending time with Jessica. We're watching TV together. We're holding hands. I'm buying her Valentine's. Even with Valentine's, I buy both of them Valentine's. Jessica's is a little bit bigger because I love her a little bit more. That, that second wife comes to me and she's frustrated. And she says, when are you going to spend time with me? And, and how do I respond? I'm busy. And I'm frustrated with that second spouse because they're trying to steal time from what I love. That's what Jesus is saying when it comes to serving him or serving money. You will love one, and when the other one gets in the way, <coughs> when the other one gets in the way, you will be frustrated. Your heart will always pick one. Jesus feared for and spoke on the competition in our heart between God and money. Secondly, secondly, the idol of wealth will enslave you. The idol of wealth will enslave you. All right, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Money's going to enslave me? No, no, no. Money's going to free me. If I won the lottery, if I got a raise, if some rich ancestor of mine died, I would be so happy. I would have everything I wanted. It would free me to do all of the things that I wanted to do. But that's not true if... If we believe what Jesus Christ said about money. Notice the language he uses here when he's talking about money. He says that, he says that money will be your master and that you will serve it. Those are terms of enslavement. See, money has this lie that I will give you something. I will make your life happy. And then money captures you. For many people, they don't have money. Money has them. 
See, it will enslave you. You get caught up in this cycle of always needing more. If I can just get to this salary price point, if I can build my bank account to this number, if I can chase just another extra couple thousand dollars a month or a year, I will have security and purpose and value. That's the transaction that money says. If you'll just give a little bit more, I'll give you the happiness you desire. But here's the problem is our hearts can never be filled with money. No matter what, your heart will always, always, always want more. It doesn't matter how much you have. I've got a picture coming up. This is John Rockefeller. I've talked about him often. He is maybe the poster boy for, for this particular issue. At his death in 1937, John Rockefeller had a value of 1.4 billion, that's billion with a B, dollars. 1.4 billion dollars. Now by today's standard, that's a lot of money by mine and your standard. Not a lot of money in today's world standard. But if you adjust for how much money that would be today, he would be worth roughly $400 billion. Let me just put that in context for you. Elon Musk is the second most rich man in the world. He only has $195 billion. See, see how money works? Only $195 billion. Jeff Bezos is, is the third most richest man in the world. He has $121 million. John Rockefeller for his time was twice as rich as the richest man on earth is today. That's how much money he had. Listen to what he said. He was once asked, how many millions, John? How many millions do you need to be happy? You got $84 million. How many more millions do you have? Will you be happy when you have 85? Will you be happy when you have 90? You know what John Rockefeller's honest answer was? He said, it's always, always one more. If I have 84 million, I need 85. If I have 85, I've got to have 90. If I have 90, that's really close to a billion. I've got to hit that billion mark. It's always a little bit more. And you see that he was enslaved by this. Listen to another comment he said. He said, do you know the only thing that gives me happiness is to see my dividends coming in. The richest man in the world, he said, the only thing in this world that makes me happy is if I get more money. He's the poster boy for somebody enslaved by money, always having to have more, never being able to stop. And I know what you're thinking is like, well, Brian, I don't have $400 billion. Why are you preaching this to us? The same thing can happen to you if you make $10,000 a year, if you make $5,000 a year, if you make $100,000 a year. Money can enslave me and you in the same way, always having to have more, always having to chase more. The next point is <clears throat> the idol of wealth can keep your heart from Jesus. The idol of wealth can keep your heart from Jesus. Listen, follower of Christ. I'm not just talking about the unsaved people in the world. I'm talking about me and you. An idol in my and your life, whether it's money or anything else, can keep our heart from Jesus. What did Jesus say? He said, you will serve one and you will despise the other. Your heart will pick one. It will make a choice of what it wants more. And the greatest example of that is found in Mark 10. Listen, listen to this story found in Mark 10. This is verses, if you'd happen to get there really quick, this is verses 17 through 22. A true story that happened to Jesus. He said, and when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest me thou good? There is none good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not uh, defraud not, honor thy father and the mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these things I have observed from my youth. 
Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. I love that. I've never noticed that. Loved him and said unto him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatsoever you have and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. 22, one of the saddest verses in the Bible. And he was sad at the saying and went away grieved for he had great possessions. Many of you have heard that story before. This is the story of the rich young ruler. And honestly, we don't teach this story a lot because sometimes we just don't know what to do with it. It's a little confusing because it deals with a couple of different topics. So a lot of times people will read this and go, okay, wait, this man asked Jesus what he had to be saved. Jesus said, go sell everything you have. So does that mean I have to be poor to be saved? You may look at that and go, okay, well, well, Jesus, this man wanted to be saved, and Jesus told him to do an action to earn his salvation. Does that mean I must earn my salvation? The answer here is no. Listen, the scripture is abundantly clear. Jesus himself was abundantly clear. You cannot and never will be able to sell yourself with actions or anything that you do for Christ. Salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone, nowhere else. There we go. Okay, you can make sure you guys are still awake. Listen, this man could have went, he could have sold his house, he could have sold his car, he could have sold his clothes, he could have sold everything, give the money away, and walked around naked for the rest of his life, and it still would not have saved him. We know that from Scripture. So was it a requirement for him, or was he earning salvation by selling all of his stuff and giving it to the poor? The answer is no. Salvation is in Jesus Christ only. But you see, Jesus' answer included something else that you missed. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. There was a call for this man to faith. See, faith says, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe who he is, who he says he is. And listen, if you truly have that kind of faith that you believe Jesus Christ is who he says he is and not just a story, that will change you. You will choose to follow him if he is, if you believe he is who he says he is. So Jesus calls him to faith. He says, follow me, believe in me, trust me for everything, follow me. And so in this, you see even Jesus, his answer here is faith for this man to be saved. And knowing this, we tend to ignore the, the sell it all thing. We tend to ignore that part of the story because obviously he didn't have to do that to be saved. The Bible's very clear. But he did say it. We, we don't want to look at that part because we know it has nothing to do with the salvation. Yet Jesus Christ did say those words to this man. Why did he say that to this man? It wasn't because selling his goods could buy him salvation. What Jesus has done here is he's identified an idol that keeps this man from faith. You cannot serve two masters. And you see the truth of that in this man. Jesus tells him, you can come follow me, take up your cross and follow me but your idol will have to go first if you're going to follow me. And you see the truth of what Jesus said. You cannot serve two masters. This man went away sad. He went away upset because for him, even though he wanted to follow Jesus, he wanted his riches more. 
It kept him from trust, and it kept you kept him from faith. So an idol can keep our hearts from Christ. So the question is, is how do I know if money is an idol for me? I want you to ask yourself this question. I've asked myself this question. How do I know if money is an idol? It has nothing to do with how much money you make. It has nothing to do with how good your savings account is. It has nothing to do with the fact that we have to have money. You must buy a house. You must buy food. You must have currency to do all of these things. As a church, we deal with currency here. We must pay the bills if we want to continue to meet here in heat with the lights on. Even in the Old Testament, the Old Testament temple dealt with money. They had to buy and sell things just like we do today. So having money or access to money, even managing money well, does not necessarily mean money is an idol for you. But an idol has these marks. So here's some identifying marks of an idol in your heart. Number one on your take-home truth is jealousy. Jealousy. When somebody you know gets a promotion or gets a raise or gets a new car, what is your first reaction? If your first reaction to is, how did they afford that car? Why did they get a raise? I worked harder than them. I'm smarter than they are. I should have got that money. What your heart is doing is it's identifying to you that your heart believes if you had what that other person had, it would provide for you happiness, respect, purpose, joy, all of those things. So if you find in your heart, when you see somebody has more money and you use terms like the rich, all those rich people, those people with those new houses, the bigger houses, the mean, the nicer cars, it's identifying to you that there is an idol in your heart because your heart believes that um, having that will make it happy. Secondly, is if your heart, or if you are self-value dependent upon money. If a bigger salary making more money this year, a bigger bonus makes you feel more worthy or more valued in this world, that is your heart telling you, telling you that you think that you think that um, the numbers uh, the numbers equal your value. And it may not even change your lifestyle. You may be sitting here and be a multimillionaire and live like you're completely poor. It's not even about the lifestyle. In fact, that's even worse when it just becomes about the numbers. And then we begin to project this on others. We'll see rich people and we'll think they're great. And we'll see poor people and we'll think that they have less value. Our heart is saying that if we serve money and get more, we will have more worth. Number three, mark of an idol, is if we are security dependent. This is one that I think hits almost everybody. If I emptied your savings account today, what would be your reaction? What would, what would you do if everything you had was suddenly taken from you? If you no longer had a cushion to fall on, if your job was lost, would your faith be and will that money save me or will God be able to take care of me? See, if you're, if you're dependent for security on wealth, what your heart is saying is, I trust money to rescue me in my time of trouble not I trust God to rescue me in my time of trouble. So your heart identifies to you <clears throat> that you have an idol. And if any of the three of those are true, you will struggle with the fourth one. Number four, your heart has an idol if you resist or if you resent giving. If you resist or resent giving. See, idols are hard to give up. And when we talk at church and when somebody teaches or the Bible teaches you about giving and your initial reaction is like, well, that's going to get in the way of building that savings account. That's going to steal my security because I don't know if there's going to be enough money left over at the end of the month after I give. That's going to keep me from getting the nice house, the big car that everybody else has that I want. It's telling you that you have an idol. And listen, I just want to say, if you're sitting here and you're identifying this in yourself, I just want to say, it's okay. 
the problem that you're dealing with right now is a biblical problem. You're dealing with the same struggle that the rich young ruler dealt with. What am I going to serve? What is more important to me? Is it my God or is it my wealth? Just let me caution you on how you handle that struggle. I hope you make the right decision. Make no mistake, every biblical story is a true story. Every biblical story actually happened. This was a living, breathing, physical human being 2,000 years ago that walked up to Jesus Christ and rejected following Christ so that he could continue to pursue his wealth. Nowhere in the Bible does it give us any indication that he ever came to faith in Christ, that he ever repented, that he ever did what Jesus asked of him. I promise you, 2,000 years later, that individual still exists. And if he could walk into this room right now, he would say, I was so stupid. I lived another 30 years after that with my wealth. I should have gave it up because I could have had Christ for eternity, and now I have nothing. Count the cost of what decision you make in this. And if you answered yes to any of those four questions, let me just tell you, you are not alone in that. I would say that almost every person in this room struggles with this to some degree. Before this week, I would have told you, Brian, do you have an idol of wealth? No, of course not. Of course I don't. But as I studied this and I got in the Word of God, I can tell you, I absolutely, in my heart, am struggling with an idol of wealth. All four of these apply to me as I've looked into my heart this week. You are not alone if this is something in your life. So the question is not, should I come here and feel horrible about having an idol of money? The question is, how do I combat this idol of money in my life? I've got just a couple points for you guys. I know it's time to go. Listen quickly. How do I combat the, combat the idol of money? Number one is replace it. You must replace an idol with something that you love more. The only cure for us, if we love something that is keeping us from Christ, is to learn how to love Christ more, to place our faith and our hope in Him, to find our joy and our happiness and our purpose and our value in Him instead of everything else. And that is easy to do when you really think about the way an idol interacts with us versus how Jesus interacts with us. How do you serve an idol? You give to an idol so that you can get something from it. But Jesus Christ is the complete inverse of that. Jesus Christ died on a cross for you and he said, here's salvation. What do I have to do to get it? Nothing, just have faith. It's free, it's for you. Jesus is not a cruel master that entraps us in some snare of always needing more. Jesus gives us everything we need at the front end of our relationship with him. And when you find salvation, you will have everything you ever need. It doesn't mean you won't struggle. It doesn't mean you won't sin. But everything you will ever need can be provided by Jesus Christ. And if you can keep that at the forefront of your heart, it will help you replace your idol. It will help me replace our idol. Here's a way to keep a focus on that. Jesus said, those who love me follow my commandments. Jesus said this, your actions are connected to your heart. And when we hear that, a lot of times we think our heart, or I'm sorry, our actions are a reflection of my heart. What is in here will come out in the way I act. That is true. But what is also true, what is also true is that your heart can be changed by your actions. Listen, I promise you, if you will resolve to follow him, either in making a choice for salvation or being obedient to him, your heart will change. Your love of an idol can be taken from you strictly by choosing to be obedient to Christ. And secondly, how do I combat the idol of money? Number two is to give proportionally. Give proportionally. See, if money is our idol, we combat that with being obedient with how we handle our money. Jesus said this, he said, where your treasure is, 
there also will your heart be. That's why if you invest in stocks and bond, your heart is with those stocks and making sure they go up. And your heart soars with joy when those stocks go up and you think about how much money you have and your heart hits despair when those stocks are sold or they go lower than you paid for them. Your heart is where your treasure is. And if that is true, if what Jesus Christ says is true, if your heart is where your treasure is, then if you begin to put your treasure into the kingdom of God, your heart will be in the kingdom of God with it. And listen, this is why we teach giving, and this is why we are focusing this year on generous giving at Ramsey Heights. Listen carefully. God does not need your money. It's his anyway. God doesn't need whatever little bit of money we can drop in an offering plate. I'll be honest with you, as pastor at Ramsey Heights, I don't care what you drop in the offering plate. It doesn't affect me. I don't try to get more. At the end of the year, we'll see how much we have, and then we'll make plans for the next year. Money does not affect us. God doesn't need your money. Your heart needs to give money. That's why we teach giving, is we want your hearts to be in the kingdom of God, and it will not be there if you do not put your treasure there first. That's why the Bible teaches us to give our first fruits. There's a verse that says, give your first fruits to God. That means when you get paid, the first thing that you do is you give a proportional amount, 10% of that to God. It is the first line item. That means before I decide how big of a house I can get, I take out my payment to God. I take out my tithe. I take out my offering to Him. Before I decide what kind of car I'm going to get, I give to God first. And then I spend for myself what I have left. Because if you don't give it to God on the front end, it will not be there on the back end to give. And you need, your heart needs to put God first in your finances if you want your heart to put God first in your relationships, in your marriages, in your parenting, and in the rest of your life. See, what we get to say to God is, I lay my idol aside, God, for you. We want you to be purposeful with giving, not giving when it's convenient, not giving out of compulsion, but be purposeful because that's what the Bible tells us to do. So this morning, as we get to the end of this, I want to ask you to do one thing during our reflection time. I just want you to ask God, what do you want me to do? I'm not going to tell you what it is. God may be calling you today to salvation. And if that's you, don't worry about the rest of this. That will come after you are saved. We're not worried about your money. We're not worried about what you can give. We just want you to know Christ. Receive from him first and then learn to give the way that he gave. But for the rest of us, I just want to ask, is it possible there's an idol in my life that more money would make me happy, more hours, a higher salary? If it is, ask God how we can combat that. And if he's calling you to do something different with your finances, Commit to him to do that today. You will never regret it, and you cannot lose what you give away. God will care for you, I promise. Let's stand and worship.